Hey, this is Dave Infante. Welcome to Vine Pairs Tap Lines, a weekly interview series with brewing icons, industry insiders, and outspoken experts about the United States' most beloved and best-selling beers. It's modern American history, one beer at a time. Sponsored content is a well-understood concept in 2024, Tap Lines listener, but that's a relatively new development. There was a time before influencers when bona fide celebrities were still the ones with all the celebrity. And while it was commonplace for them to endorse products, until recently it was pretty damn unusual for them to bring their actual creative faculties to bear on original work commissioned by brands. And it was even more unusual for that work to be, you know, good. <laughs> Joining Taplines today is Jacinta Howard, a culture journalist in Atlanta who has covered hip-hop for decades to talk about a very specific very special and very star-studded sponsored content series that hit the airwaves in, back in the late 80s and early 90s. St. Ides Malt Liquor first arrived on store shelves in 1987, but it wasn't until the brand's parent company hired the iconic DJ Pooh to enlist a who's who of blue-chip rappers from Ice Cube to the Wu-Tang Clan in the production of mixtapes and music videos about the crooked eye that it really began to take off. And when it did, sales followed. But so did the controversy that would eventually bring St. Ides' breakout SponCon project to an end. It's journalist Jacinta Howard, it's St. Ides, it's how hip-hop legends made malt liquor magic, and it's all right here right now on Von Pairs Taplines. Jacinta Howard, welcome to the Taplines podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. How are you? Where are you joining us from, Jacinta? I am in Atlanta. Atlanta, in Georgia. East Point, East Point mm-hmm. Atlanta, Georgia. I think you're our first yep. guest to be uh, joining the show from from the ATL, from the A. I don't say that. It's not natural for me to say that. I don't know why I just said that. But welcome to <laughs> welcome to Tap Welcome to Tap Lines. And we're actually recording this on the Thank on you. the day of uh, Andre 3000's flute album coming out there's some atlanta history mm-hmm. being made right now we're going to be talking about some history uh on the podcast today it will not be about andre 3000 but it will be about uh some luminaries some larger than life titans of uh of hip-hop as a genre and as a culture because of course today we're going to be talking about the crooked eye sane eyes Jacinta, for listeners who may not be, because we've got a lot of beer industry listeners, and obviously malt liquor is beer. That's what it is as a as a category, right? It fits into the the malt beverage category. It's got malt in the name. But a lot of beer drinkers in 2023 aren't as familiar with malt liquor as a you know a, a product because it's fallen out of fashion both in mainstream mm-hmm. culture and then I think also significantly within hip hop culture over the course of the past, you know, two decades, um, after peaking in the late nineties and and maybe early aughts. Um, and we're going to talk about all that, but, um, we're talking today about St. Ides and I was hoping for the listener that you could queue up, uh, you know, your relationship with St. Ides and why this brand in particular has, sort of stood out to you over the years because you're a culture journalist. You're not a beer journalist. You don't have to worry about the beer industry if you don't want to. But St. Ides obviously has a lot of bearing on what you do and the beat you cover. Why is that, Jacinta? Um, I think mostly because St. Ides really uniquely used hip-hop 
um, in its branding mm. from the very beginning. Um, and so the way that it incorporated hip hop into its marketing um, was just, it still is to me unique to this day um, in terms of, you know, St. Ives is one of the only brands who came out the gate using hip hop as its marketing strategy, mm. as opposed to, oh, we're, you know, we're having a hard time or, oh, we want to reach younger people or whatever. Let's use some hip hop. This brand like kind of came out the gate using hip hop. And then the way they used it was like very authentic. Like, you know, a lot of times folks will go to mainstream or pop artists or kind of crossover artists, but St. Ives came again, straight out the gate using like very authentic artists who were really connected to community in a really authentic way, which was, which makes it really unique to me. Yeah. 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 So St. Ives hits the scene in, uh, in 1987 is when the brand first, you know, starts selling, you know, under the St. Ives brand name. They're, the company is Mackenzie River Corporation, I think, that um, that initially creates the St. Ives brand. Malt liquor was already a thing at that point, right? Malt liquor in the post-World War II era gets its start because American brewers, you know, need an answer to spirits and wine that, you know, American GIs have come back from overseas with a new taste for, you know, high quality or high, you know, higher uh, ABV wine, higher, you know, ABV spirits, different tastes, right? Whatever. So American brewers come up with this idea to create malt liquor. Initially, they want to, they want to treat it as a premium good. It never really catches on in that way. It kind of, you know, doesn't do whatever, but it's been around since whatever the fifties, right? The late forties. So St. Ives was late to the game in, in one regard, and yet it had just this enormous, impact because of a little bit of what you describe. I mean, I think the, you know, the liquid itself was not distinctive. It, it tasted more or less like any of the other malt liquors out there, you know, so there wasn't a lot of distinguishing characteristics there, but their marketing was, as you say, like authentic and, and really for the era, would you say it was kind of unprecedented? Like, do you know of, or, you know, when you look at what was going on in, in 1987 in 19, you know, like closer to 1990, 92, 93, were there other brands that were moving into hip hop marketing in in the way that St. Ives was, or was it kind of pioneering this move? I think it. I think it really did kind of pioneer it um, to a large degree because, like I said, the level of authenticity and plus, you know, like in the late eighties, early nineties, hip hop was really just at it in a very early spot of mm. getting big big endorsements. Yeah. Um, you know, there weren't a whole lot of hip hop artists, even when they were really big, getting like endorsements. Um, you know, you had like MC Hammer with Pepsi, but, you know, MC Hammer was like a huge crossover artist. Mm. Um, so, you know, when St. Ives came out and like I said, with the, the level of authenticity and the artists that they chose to represent the brand and to market the brand, it really was very, very unprecedented. And, you know, because of the level of authenticity and also because brands still weren't really heavily, heavily using um, hip hop um, in their marketing strategy. I mean, Sprite came out, you know, I think in the toward like the early 90s with the really heavy presence in hip hop. Um, but they did not come out the gate with that. That was kind of like a rebrand for them. So, you know, endorsement deals were still pretty early on for, for most, you know, for most hip hop artists. But like I said, like the way that St. Ives incorporated hip hop was very unique and still is, I think. Yeah. Let's talk about this authenticity in some of the artists that St. Ives involves in its marketing, you know, coming out the gate, as you say, right. There's when you look back and I was like doing research and refreshing my memory on this, you know, before we, we jumped on to record today. 
And it's like, it's just a who's who of hip hop in that era. Talk, let's talk about the artists. Like, um, I'm looking at my list right now that I've got the notes for. St. Ides did commercials with Notorious, B.I.G., Snoop Dogg, Tupac, Warren G., Nate Dogg, and the Wu-Tang Clan, among others. Um, just to tell our audience, you know, unpack that litany of names, that parade of talent. Like, has that ever really, you know, at that time, like, no one was really, like, getting all of those names in the same place, right? Much less to promote a product, right? Right. And, I mean, the cool thing is, yes, those were, like, really big names. Mm. Um, well, at the time, they were big names in hip-hop. Mm. You know, they, like, when Snoop was coming out, this was, like, when, when Snoop was doing his commercial, it was fresh off of, like, Doggy Style and, like, kind of fresh off The Chronic. So those were, like, Doggy Style was obviously his first album that came out in 93. Um, and so he was a hip-hop star, but he was a hip-hop star. He mm. wasn't, like a huge, huge, um, nothing like the Snoop Dogg music of today. I mean, <laughs> not, I mean, he wasn't like the Martha Stewart, right. you know, making kids gluten-free cereal Snoop Dogg. He was, he was you know, <laughs> he was still early on in his career, even though right. he was a star, obviously then, right. but, you know, and then, you know, you have Wu-Tang Clan who, who came out the gate and they were real, you know, they exploded on the scene, but you know, they were still, you know, new. That was like, you know, 36 Chambers didn't come out until 90. Um, let's see, we, we just celebrated the 30th anniversary sort of been so 93, 93. Yeah, yeah. right so yeah so these were still artists who were kind of early on like in their careers but yeah i mean the other thing that really made saint eyes really stand out and i think the main thing is they were not creating jingles mm. Th these weren't like these weren't songs that were like okay we have a jingle and you put your spin on it they were like making real songs. Yeah. And they were like jam. <laughs> like they were good songs. They hold um, up you know, you too. To I was listening to like the St. Yeah. mixtape, which came out in 1990. And it's like legitimately good to listen to. That's what I'm saying. And that was really different. And I still think that's something that's unique still to this day. Like, I mean, I was listening to Big Boy's Cadillac commercial and that's like really great. It's yeah. actually a great song. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, other than that, like. Most of the time, it's like, you know, the artist is, is selling, you know, a jingle or, you know, they're just kind of there. These artists were like actually making like really dope songs that, mm. like you said, like still stand up. And it almost felt like almost like a competition, like who's going to have the dopest St. Ives commercial? I mean, Nate Dogg, you had, you know, Red and Meth did one. Cypress Hill did one. Like yeah. Ghetto Boys did one with Ice Cube. And like and from what I was researching, I think DJ Pooh had like a really who's like a West Coast producer and like actually co-wrote Friday, um, is played a really instrumental role in like the St. Ives world. That's right. Um, uh, so DJ Pooh sort of like air traffic controls this or sort of like behind the scenes is like the guy who puts, uh, he was the broker of the talent more or less. Can you speak a little bit to the role, uh, like the power of DJs or the significance of DJs in, in like, pulling together talent and putting together mixtape, things like that at that time. I mean, it's different now, obviously. We don't really think of DJs having that level of cultural import in the same way. But from what I understand, the significance or the the instrumental role that a DJ could play in, in you know, lining up talent and, and you know, kind of elevating uh, performers' careers was pretty uh, influential at that time, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the DJ is like, you know, one of the core elements of hip hop. And mm. yeah, at the time, you know, DJs were really producers as well. Um, I mean, which a lot of them still are. I mean, a lot of DJs are still act as producers, but in Pooh's case, like Pooh is just like a West Coast legend, mm. a hip hop legend, really. I don't want to 
limited to the West Coast. And so, yeah, I mean, his relationships and, and the connectivity that he had across, you know, hip hop in general probably really was able to like create a world where people felt like they weren't being exploited necessarily. They felt mm. safe. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like where they felt like it was a thing that they should actually attach themselves to because of his reputation. And, you know, some of those commercials are funny because you can see like you could see Friday, you could see his comical side in some of those commercials. Yeah. And so you see kind of where some of those drops from Friday <laughs> came on early in those St. Ives commercials. But yeah. yeah, I mean, who brought a level of like, you know, for him to be involved meant that it was something that people should be involved in. And then also Ice Cube, you know, because they were partners, you know. So Ice Cube you can see like the early some of the early records, um, like this the one with um Ghetto Boys. You know, Ice Cube had a had a longstanding relationship with Scarface. And that was really cool because, you know, obviously Ghetto Boys are based in Houston. And that was showing a connection between the two regions. Um, but yeah, I mean, between Pooh and Cube's involvement, that really brought a level of like, we should, you know. Gravitas to, to it. it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, exactly. Can you speak a little bit to the, you know, you mentioned that Ghetto Boys are from Houston. You have Pooh on the West Coast and who's, you know, a, a legend in hip hop, as you say, but is based, you know, on the West Coast. Ice Cube, obviously based uh, on the West Coast. But one of the things that, at least to a, a novice like me in the in the hip hop space or, you know, a casual observer of hip hop um, is it seems notable, especially at that time, is that like regionally there was not necessarily a lot of cohesion in hip hop. Right. Like some of these different regions of the country, especially East Coast versus West Coast, which is, you know, no pun intended, notorious at that time for having a lot of friction within those two communities. But regionally, like there wasn't necessarily like continuity in hip hop the way we think now of artists, you know, obviously they come from somewhere and they often, you know, make that central to their identity, but they are able to be national artists without sort of being of one scene specifically. And and that wasn't always the case, obviously. And there's a lot of, you know, media that has been produced around those differences at the regional level and, and how they've borne out in hip hop. But what is interesting to me about St. Ides specifically is that like these commercials were pretty agnostic on region. It wasn't a West coast thing. It wasn't an East coast thing necessarily. Um, could you speak a little bit to if that was unusual in your mind, like why you think that came to be like how much precedent was there for that in hip hop at that time? Well, I mean, I think in the like the early 90s, I think the whole West Coast, East Coast thing really, really came to prominence and really started becoming a thing around like 94, 95. Mm, OK. And so prior to that, yes, each region kind of had its own specific sound. Um, what was happening in Houston didn't necessarily sound exactly like what was happening in LA, which didn't sound exactly like what was happening in the Bay, mm -hmm. which didn't sound like what was happening in, you know, Philly or Jersey or, yep. yeah, or but yeah. there was still more hip hop was still hip hop in my, you know, it, it, I think back then it, there was even more of a distinction between, you know, mainstream artists versus, artists who were not quite as mainstream more mm -hmm. so than than a coast specific thing but moving on into um like some of the later years yeah it was cool that they were able to go across the country because like I was watching one of the videos earlier and you know Biggie's rapping over um a dog pound beat mm. on one of it mm. <laughs> you know what I mean so and this was like 
you know, dog pounding come out till 95. So, yeah. Yeah. so you know. Jacinta, for people who don't know, the understand the significance of that, can you just speak to why that is unusual or why that was remarkable in your mind? Yeah, because, you know, that was part of, of when the whole East Coast, West Coast thing kind of started to kick off and was elevated by, mm -hmm. in my opinion, irresponsible media. <laughs> but, you know, um, you know, Dog Pound had New York, New York, and that kind of, you know, Snoop Dogg's in the video kicking down, you know, New York buildings, et cetera. Um, and that really kind of started to sort of escalate the whole, you know, war between Bad Boy and Death Row. Mm -hmm. And so to see Biggie rapping on a Dog Pound beat is at that time just kind of contrary to what you're seeing in terms of like the inflamed situation between East Coast and West Coast rap communities. Right. Yeah. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. I interrupted yeah. you a second ago. I'm sorry about that, but I just want to make sure our audience uh, who's not maybe as schooled in, on hip hop history as you are and who could be uh, to make sure that they understood the significance of what you said. But yeah. So, okay. So the geographic sort of cohesiveness to hip hop was maybe still obviously like people are still, you know, coming from a specific region, but to your point, um, the sort of the friction and the inflamed tension and, you know, outright violence that would sometimes boil over based on regional differences or geographic differences was not present necessarily, or certainly not at the fore um, in 1987, when St. Ives hits the scene, it's later on, it's mid nineties when that starts really hitting, um, from, you know, from what you've described. Got it. Okay. Let's talk about where hip hop is. I, I jumped you right into where malt liquor was. And we started talking about this from malt liquor's perspective. We've obviously sort of examined where St. Ives fell into that and how it brought hip hop into, you know, malt liquor marketing and beverage alcohol marketing more generally, where is hip hop at in 1987 versus 1995 in terms of its relationship to both core listeners and the mainstream? Because that shift is also happening, right? Like hip hop in 1987 is still a, a niche genre, right? It doesn't have the same purchase that it does even seven, eight years later in the mid nineties, right? Right. Right. And I mean, I think that's partly why, you know, St. Ives was able to beyond, beyond, you know, the relationships that Pooh probably brought to the table. Mm -hmm. um, there just wasn't as much opportunity for, entre for um, you know, endorsements and stuff, you know. So by the time the mid 90s hits and on probably like 97, 98, yep. you have albums that are going, you know, multi-platinum. 98 was a huge year for hip hop because you had like a lot of albums that were like going multi-platinum like dmx had two albums that both he released two albums in one year and both of them you know were multi-platinum wow albums. really so i didn't even know by that, that time, holy smokes man <laughs> yeah but by that time you start seeing you know hip-hop really starting to embrace endorsements artists were starting to um not only have endorsements but become form partnerships with different spirits companies etc mm. etc et and so it opened the door, but when when St. Ives came out, like in the late '80s, those opportunities just weren't weren't there. And I think it added almost a level of validity in some ways um, to be involved with this brand who really embraced hip hop 
and let them kind of just do whatever they wanted to do. Like MC8's commercial, like he's cursing in it and they're just bleeping it out. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You know what I mean? So, yeah. It is crazy that like, you know, 2023, obviously we're 30 years removed or more, I suppose. Um, but we have these conceptions of like brand safety, right? And, and you know, what's brand friendly? Um, sponsored content obviously went on to take a life of its own, uh, especially in the late, you know, aughts and, and midway through last decade as digital media, you know, explodes and becomes, uh, you know, sort of its own category of media. But this was, if you think about the St. Ives commercials through the lens of like, oh, this was effectively sponsored content, right? This is a company like footing the bill on, you know, content creation that popular artists are going to do and their audiences are going to react to, right? Like that is effectively what that is. It was in no way like, you know, sort of like guided or hemmed in by the parameters of sponsored content as we think of it today. To your point, like, you know, people are cursing on these on these raps. People are uh, like the most, I think, one of the more infamous lines that appears in any St. Ides uh, commercial is Ice Cube's line, which is get your girl in the mood quicker, get your Jimmy thicker with St. Ides malt liquor. Like, I mean, these are this then that was just in the song, you know, like <laughs> and and so it's yeah. just like there's it, tell me a little bit about your take on I mean, because you you stress the authenticity and why, you know, sort of like these these commercials hit as hard as they did and why. You know, they ha- they've held up so well is obviously like the, the artists were into them. But a lot of the things that the artists brought to the table at that time were not and, and even still to this day are not really things that, you know, tropes and themes and language that brands necessarily like want to be around. Why do you think it worked? Why do you think, you know, like this was this made it to air it back in, you know, the late 80s, early 90s on these on these commercials? You know, I. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think that's, I think, I think that's interesting though. I mean, I think, um, a lot of it was probably just testing the waters mm. and, you know, back then there was like a lot of, um, I'm, I'm trying to say like, it's almost, it's almost as if hip hop was expected to be a certain way. You mm. didn't really see, and I don't want to, I don't want to minimize it because there were like in the late eighties, you did have public enemy. And then in the early nineties, you have folks like X clan and, sure. you know, you had, you know, KRS one, et cetera. But, um, it seems like a certain kind of hip hop almost had an expectation for how it would present itself. And so for brand associated with those kind of artists, they were almost, it was almost like you were looking for that or you had an expectation for a certain level of like rawness, I guess. Right. So you, that was probably a, uh, something they were willing to risk. I'm thinking, I you know, um, sure, because you hadn't seen it had not matured in the same way, you know, that it has now at that point. And so they were probably seeking that almost. And that's Mm. where it starts to get kind of like, yeah, maybe gross, exploitative, (laughs) maybe a little inappropriate. Yeah, yeah. And I want to talk about that because I think that's also core to this story. The the St. Ives story is partly a story of you know, there's a benign way to read it, right? Like there's this incredible outpouring of creativity. These artists are able to get on the, the mic and, and, you know, get on TV in many cases. Like these are videos for the most part, listener, and you can go look them up on YouTube. I highly recommend it. They're fascinating cultural artifacts. But like this is not necessarily like budget that artists, even the ones that we ne- that have now gone on to be massive, you know, multi-million dollar, you know, platinum artists, they didn't have the money to produce 
you know, higher budget music videos like this necessarily, or it was going to, you know, it would be, they would want to do that with, you know, maybe one of their songs or a couple of their songs. Like, so there's, there's a benign way to look at this, right? Oh, the, the corporation is, you know, giving them the money to do something cool. And like, that's interesting. Right. But the, the, the more, the less charitable way to look at it is that, well, we have a, corporation that's selling, you know, malt liquor, uh, to a community that over indexes on, you know, alcohol related ills, uh, you know, social and physiological ills, and they're using hip hop to promote that product to that community. Right. And that, that's where, and there's, there's also an outpouring of frustration and a lawsuit and really, uh, intense scrutiny from public health officials because of that later on in St. Ives' journey. We're going to get there in just a moment, Jacinta, but before we do, I wanted to ask you about sort of the foil to St. Ives in the malt liquor and hip-hop sort of nexus, Old English. So OE800 is not new when St. Ives hits the scene. St. Ives comes out in 87. Um, OE, I think, comes out in 1964. So it's been around for a while, right? And I wanted to get your take on why, because Old English had showed up in some hip-hop media and and would continue to be a part of hip-hop culture uh, even once St. Ives hit the scene, but I wanted to get your take on where you sort of see old English fitting into the hip hop landscape in 87, in 88, 89, you know, in the early nineties, because there was a void there. Oh, he had not leaned into hip hop marketing in the same way that St. Ives kind of, you know, did from the jump. And St. Ives was able to work its way into that scene that OE had kind of naturally wound up in for the past 20 years without really working that hard at it. Right. Talk about that a little bit. I mean, I think that was a missed opportunity for Oldie. Yeah. <laughs> no <were> kidding. Just, <laughs> I mean, really, like you have a, a specific demographic that really seems to gravitate toward your product for better or for worse. Mm. I think it's for worse. Mm. But you have a built-in market and you don't acknowledge, you know, that base. And yeah. And I want to be careful with how I'm talking about this because I'm not suggesting that, you know, our community, the black community needed malt liquor. Right. No, no, no. We <laughs> needed malt liquor branding. But, but I'm saying, Why you know, didn't you really target kind of, us? Yeah. <laughs> right, right. I'm not saying that. Yeah. But the fact that it was a thing that was popular, I mean, I think that that's really, you know, an example of how hip hop was treated mm. and, you know, was treated, especially then was you have these people who are making the culture go who are making things popular, who are making things pop and you don't acknowledge them and you don't validate that, that interest um, with your dollars, Mm. (laughs) with your marketing dollars. You know what I mean? So that was a missed opportunity in that, in that context for old English, really. I mean, they really should have essentially been doing what St. Ives did. I mean, cause old E was in, you know, yeah, it was in movies. It was in, you know, videos, you know, the whole 40 ounce. I don't know what the whole backstory is of how the 40 ounce came to be. But, but the bottle but, itself, you know, I mean, just the idea of, yeah, drink, drinking the 40 ounce in the way that the old English, it just looked so fat. And yeah, it just looked like you were just guzzling like huge yeah. amounts of, you know, it looked, yeah. So I've looked into this a fair amount. When I was report, I reported out like a history of uh, of malt liquor, and forties were not synonymous with malt liquor for basically 
25 to 30 years, right? Like I said, post-war malt liquor starts coming out. It's sold in, in six packs and bottles, um, which it is to this day, but like it, you know, that was the only format it was sold in. It's just the same vessels that beer were, you know, cans and bottles, right? Same vessels that beer were somewhere along the way. And it's not clear. I was never able to quite get to the bottom of where the 40 comes from. Um, but a 1993 New York times article claimed that they were introduced as a vessel specifically to carry malt liquor to, to put malt liquor in, in the late eighties. Um, and that resulted according to this 1993 New York times article resulted in a 12% uptick in, uh, in sales by volume, right? Which makes sense from a beer industry perspective, volume is the game. And, um, if you can get someone who was drinking a 16 ounce can to buy a 40 ounce bottle for this effectively the same price because economies of scale allow the company to price it basically the same. Well, guess what? You've just captured an additional 24 ounces of volume that you just put out. Right. So like the volume uptick makes sense there. Um, but yeah, so the, the 40 comes along in like the early to mid eighties, according to the reporting that I was able to find. Um, and it quickly becomes synonymous with hip hop and or with uh, with malt liquor, which for a time then became synonymous with hip hop. Um, OE, you know, it, it shows up in Boys in the Hood, obviously uh, the John Singleton um, uh, masterpiece, uh, and that's just that iconic scene. You know, they're drinking them throughout, but then the iconic scene where uh, uh, Ice Cube pours it out. Um, it shows up in an NWA song. Uh, they, they release a song that is not sponsored content. That is just a song off of one of their albums or their tapes uh, called eight ball. Uh, that's about OE in 1987 as well. So the 40 was in the mix. Uh, old English was in the mix, especially on the West coast, it seems. Um, and yet like the brand didn't capitalize on that proximity or that like, you know, latent affinity within the hip hop community for its product. Um, and so St. Ives was able to, was able to co-opt a lot of that sort of latent demand in a way that I think like, you know, old English was a little bit flat footed on. Mm -hmm. I want to pivot this just into, to the second part of the conversation, which I sort of already gestured at, which is like, we talk about capitalizing on attention. We talk about, oh man, like they, they could have made this move and it was a missed opportunity. Right. But you express some discomfort with the idea of, you know, like we don't want to be saying that the brand should have been doing this because as we mentioned a moment ago, like there are a lot of like well-known social ills that are associated with alcohol use and abuse. And we know that the black community both then and now, um, over indexes on those ills for a variety of, you know, legislative and policy and like social factors, right? There are more liquor stores in black communities. This is well documented. Like these are, there are a bunch of these different things that lead to, you know, overconsumption in a way that negatively affects the community. And I think it's really core to both, you know, the St. Ides story and malt liquor story in general, that however you get to the point where in 1987, St. Ides says, hey, you know what the best way to launch a malt liquor brand would be, would be to hit up all of the best hip hop artists, you know, in the scene and get them to market our products. Maybe you get to that point with the best intentions. You know, I think you can maybe assume good faith where it's like, hey, this was just a good idea and it, and it went in a maybe not so good direction. But like by the mid 90s, 
this is not just a sort of marketing exercise. This is also a lightning rod for pushback from public health officials, like I said, from members of the hip hop community. I mean, in, in 91, I think Chuck D sued St. Ives, right? Like, so this is not something that's just like happening and everyone feels great about it. Right. And I want to talk about, because you've already like very smartly like gestured at this or referenced this, like that's the other side of the story. And it's an important one because it speaks to how mainstream brands, in this case, St. Ives, you know, look to hip hop to do certain things um, and to extract certain things. And maybe like the consequences of those are born unequally by the brand and the community. You see where I'm going? Like, let's, let's talk about that mm-hmm. a little bit. I mean, it's a little bit heavier, obviously, but I think, I don't think you can have this conversation without talking about that. Right. Yeah, for sure. And I think, I mean, you, you brought up Chuck D, um, you know, suing them. I think it was for the use of his voice in one of the songs. Yeah, which was also insane. Like they just like decided to use Chuck (laughs) D's voice. It's interesting because Chuck, you know, his public enemy was produced by Bomb Squad and Mm. Bomb Squad actually did um, Ice Cube's first out, you know, did America's Most Wanted, which was his Ah, first solo album. And, you know, so they already had like a connection there. And it's interesting too. I was thinking about Ice Cube because his first two records were extremely socially, they're, you know, they're socio-political albums, yep. America's Most Wanted and Death Certificate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I've said, you know, Death Certificate really is the blueprint, in my opinion, for that brand of socio-political rap mm. that you would then see. You know, I don't think without that album, you don't get a Run the Jewels, you don't get pieces of Kendrick Lamar, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that connection is interesting because when Saint when he started doing Saint Ides, that was um, kind of in the period where he was starting to go into more of today is a good day, and they know how, you know you know how we do it that that era of Q. Right, right. Anyway, I'm I'm kind of <laughs> no, no, but no, yeah, no. Please, I mean, I, please. I think, <laughs> but you have to talk about you know, like you said, it's really important to talk about um, the pushback that it was getting at the time and the things that will cause the pushback because you know. It's interesting when you were talking earlier about malt liquor, I think the thought about uh, of malt liquor in our community it really always comes kind of with a really negative connotation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in my experience, I never even thought of malt liquor as anything but like negative, like <laughs> like really? bad, yeah. you know what I mean? Um, and it is largely because of the old E and the, you know, the liquor stores on every corner and this in the push that was happening, like in the early 90s with artists like because at the same time that like so-called and I'm, I'm really so-called gangster rap, which a lot of early on stuff got labeled gangster right. just because it was very like raw and political <laughs> because and white frank. people were scared <laughs> of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so early on. But I mean, at the same time, you have that. You also have, like I said, the public enemies and the KRS ones and X Clan and this push. Like, you know, Spike Lee came out with like Malcolm X in 92. Mm, and so mm. there was this real push towards um, being, you know, the black community being, um, you know, taken care of better, you know, us addressing issues that systemic racism in our communities in a different way an eye on hip-hop because hip-hop always was you know a voice for the streets a voice for the people i don't even want to say the streets it was always a voice for the people Mm -hmm. and so you know there was always this um you know this pushback about how hip-hop was being presented how it was being used and as endorsements and as brands started attaching to hip-hop um it even created more of a pushback and so so yeah i mean 
St. Ives is a really interesting conversation because on the one hand, you have all of these dope artists who are like making dope music <laughs> through yeah, this brand. Yeah, yeah. And it created like a whole moment they were talking about 30 years later. But at the same time, you know, what is St. Ives and what what did they want with this? <laughs> like, you know what right, I mean? You ask right. the question, like, you know, what was the what what were the effects of that? And the effects of that were it, just in terms of let's talk about sales and volume before we talk about some of those like heavier downsides. Um, in the early nineties, African American drinkers composed about twelve to fourteen percent of the overall American drinking population, right? So that's more or less, you know, where the population and the drinking population are more or less the same in the African-American population within the U.S. population in the early 90s was about 12 to 14 percent, depending on how you slice it. They were drinking around 28 percent of the country's malt liquor. Colt 45 which we haven't mentioned, but it's another major malt liquor brand that had also made overtures to the African-American community uh, using a different cultural touchstone, uh, Billy D. Williams, who was sort of the ideal, uh, he was a black actor, but uh, and he's still alive, he's not dead, um, a black actor, but he appealed to white people, he was, uh, he was a movie star, so he had like what what marketers would call crossover appeal, even though it's kind of gross to to refer to it that way. Um, so, Colt Forty Five uh, in in 1991, the Washington Post reports that the the parent company of Colt Forty Five sells 75 percent of Colt Forty Five's overall volume is sold to the black community. Right. So, by these data points, like we are just talking about. Uh, you know, statisticians refer to it as over-indexing. I've, I've used that term a couple times, but like, we're just talking about like an enormous amount of the country's overall malt liquor output flowing into a fairly small slice of its drinking community, right? 12 to 14%, 75% of cold 45, 28% overall of all malt liquor to the African-American community. I mean, these are substantial mismatches in terms of proportion, right? And and because of that, as we as we're talking about, like people are making a ton of money, right? Big big companies are making a ton of money. And what happens when big companies make a ton of money? Uh, they keep on doing the thing that works, right? And so you start to see it snowball. And even by the early '90s, when Chuck D. Chuck D. I think files his suit against. Uh, St. Ives in 91 because they they inadvertently or inappropriately used his voice. But there's already starting to be scrutiny on like, whoa, like this thing took on a mind of its own. We need to like take a look at what's going on here. And, you know, Chuck D does that through art, right? He releases, I think in 91, one million bottle bags is on one of his albums. Um, but there's also public health scrutiny as well. The, the Surgeon General is getting involved. The uh, health of, you know, Department of Health and Human Services are getting involved. And I bring all that up because, look, this would eventually play out, but and, and it plays out in, you know, the, the companies getting sued. It plays out in some of them voluntarily pulling back, right? Like there are business decisions that are made where it's like, whoa, this is not a good look. We are getting... Uh, either you know legal costs are rising or the public relations attention is really bad and it's bad for other brands, whatever. The market sort of corrects itself with regulation, but something is happening in hip hop 
at you know by the mid to late nineties as well, Jacinta. And that's where I was hoping we could steer the conversation now. Is you mentioned spirits earlier in our in our, our chat here. What's what's happening in hip hop that sort of opens the door to these more premium products like malt liquor was not premium, right? It was a, uh, not for the streets. I mean, it effectively became that way, but like, you know, like malt liquor is an affordable thing, right? A bottle of cognac, not nearly as affordable, but we start to see a shift happening in hip hop that allows it to kind of ladder up and away from some of these down market, like, you know, brands like St. Ives that had previously been the only endorsements that, that rappers could get. Tell me about what's what's going on in rap at that time. I think rappers were just getting rich. <laughs> we could have more millionaires. <laughs> they were selling more records. They were, you know, and, and with that money and with that level of, you know, opulence or, you know, yeah, yeah. use your taste start to change. Yeah. That's for anybody, yeah. you know, rapper or whoever. Like, you know, you make more money, your your tastes typically change to reflect the what you can afford. Sure. Um, and, you know, as hip hop, you know, started to make more money and you know you started to see even more you it was even clearer how financially viable it was for companies you know rappers like i said started getting rich they started to filter into other things spirit you know they were drinking cognac and, and you know um vodka yeah was a was a okay, thing yeah, yeah. <laughs> vodka was yeah, a thing yeah. <laughs> folks were you know but folks were like starting to go into it and in there it also there was also a level of like increased ownership because there was this push that you know there was there was more of an understanding of just how um financially viable hip hop really was um, and so you started having a lot of people who were saying from the very beginning who were who were very business focused. Yeah. You know, so you had folks like from the very beginning, you know, people like E40, very, very business minded, came in with his own label, um, you know, too short, very business minded, Jay-Z, you know, so you started having people who were filtering out of just owning the record labels, but then also filtering into other things that were of interest to to hip hop consumers anyway. And yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. What do you think? Do you remember or like, have you looked at like, where does the spirits endorsement start? Like, is it like which brands were early on? Curvassier comes to mind. Like hypnotic was not until a little later, I think. I don't know. When do you start to see spirits brands show up and, and which ones were they? Um, I, I remember more so people talking about spirits. I don't know that like Hennessy. Hennessy was not actually if, doing sponsorships yet or whatever. Okay. I, okay. I'm asking yeah, you. See, yeah, yeah. I just, yeah. Oh, oh, no, no. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't really recall like seeing Hennessy commercial, but I do know Hennessy was like a huge thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, um, I'm not real sure when. I, I think that it was Diddy, though, that had the first Spirits endorsement, mm. if I'm not mistaken. Um, don't quote me on that, no, but I no, feel no, like yeah. that that might be correct. And that probably would have been around 97, yeah. 8-ish yeah. or so. Um, yeah, and then, you know, they started getting into partnerships and things like that, you know, with Spirits brands. And then Diddy would obviously go on to, you know, launch Ciroc and De Leon Tequila, I think he has now. Jay-Z uh, had, gosh, a few over the years and just got mm-hmm. out of another one with Bacardi that he he was he had a big lawsuit with them. But like uh, mm-hmm. they would they would go on to own the brands themselves after doing endorsements mm-hmm. for other brands. Yeah, yeah. Here's sort of 
a way to tie maybe to tie all this up or to try to like zoom out and and discuss like the significance of this like really feckoned, really like chaotic period that we've just described where hip hop is coming into its own as both a genre and a marketing platform. Uh, there's, you know, sort of the, you know, public health and legalistic, you know, pushback on, uh, on malt liquor and its association with hip hop. Then as we, as we just discussed, hip hop kind of leaves malt liquor behind and, and malt liquor deserved to be left behind. Spare no pity for malt liquor listener. Um, but I'm curious just into, you know, as someone who's reported on this space for a, you know, two decades and you know, you, you, uh, you know it inside and out, um, or you certainly know it better than me. Uh, one of the concepts that comes up a lot in my coverage of the beer industry is this idea of selling out, right? Like the craft brewing industry for years, was very, it's not so much anymore, but used to be very, very like anxious about and even obsessed with the idea of like not selling, you know, the cultural cachet that it had developed as an industry to the big corporations that were trying to, you know, co-opt it. Right. And that was always, there was always like a level of like self mythology there. And, and I think like a lot of hypocrisy too. And I've reported on that, but I, I wanted to use the, the, the lens of like selling out to reflect back on this whole era that we just talked our way through 1987 to 1998 or whatever, you know, the late 80s to the, to the, you know, year 2000 or so hip hop goes through this enormous change. And on one hand, you could view the St. Ides commercials as a version of selling out. And on the other hand, at the, at, you know, on the other end of this period that I'm talking about in the, in the late nineties and into the year 2000, you could view you know, sort of the pivot to spirits and the pivot to more high-end pro and premium product and, and turning away from, you know, sort of the grittier imagery that malt liquor, you know, partially sort of represented in hip-hop as another form of selling out. And yet, neither of those, at least to my eye, have really, neither of those instances really get criticized in that way in the stuff that I've read. But I'm curious to hear your take because you're so much more on this beat and you know this space so much more, how did the premise or the concept of selling out play into these endorsement deals that we've talked about? Was it something the community talked about? Was it something artists rejected or some of them rejected? Uh, where did that fit in, if at all? Well, I mean, I think I think early on with St. Ides, I think the reason why you had the the wide range of artists that you had and the the level of artists that you had participating, you know, in in the marketing for them is because like I said before they just didn't have as many opportunities. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. you know, hip hop has always been looking for ways to be I mean, you know, when hip hop first started, it wasn't even looked at as a genre. Like no one even, you know, gave the it first the time rap of record day. wasn't yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. It wasn't recorded until like I think 79 and they say hip hop started in 73. So, you know, it took that long wow. to even get it on <laughs> on record. Yeah. So, I think, you know, I think that early on um it was looked at more as opportunity, I think, even than what we were selling necessarily. Like we were already familiar with, you know, drinking, et cetera. Artists were younger then. You know, now, of, of course, you wouldn't have Method Man embracing a malt liquor brand. 
I mean, Method Man is on the cover of Men's Health. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Of course you wouldn't have. I don't think Snoop Dogg would do that. No. I mean, like I said, Snoop Dogg has gluten-free children's, yeah. children's cereal. And he has now. wine. He, you know, so, he, has, he has famously has the 19 has Crimes wine, wine yeah, with uh, Treasury Wine right. Estates is the, is the name of the brand. So even that is right. a, form of, a form of premiumization away from, you know, malt liquor, of course, right? Like that's not, those aren't the same things. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then part of it is also just, like I said, you know, um, you know, E-40 was talking about Carlos Rossi wine. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. Early on from the time I first heard him, like in the late 80s. And now he has, you know, Earl Stevens selections. Yeah. So I think some of it is just who embraced hip hop, who looked at it as something, you know, value that had value. And, you know, these companies now are, you know, like I said, for better or for worse, or, you know, whether they're looking to. And we know in this country, especially the bottom line is money. <laughs> but, but, you know, I mean, you know, early on, there weren't very many companies that were adding value to hip hop or valuing it in a way that said, hey, you know, we even think that we can create a program around you all. Um, and so, you know, moving forward, that obviously has greatly shifted. And then also, you know, obviously the times are different. Like I said, you know, people are more health conscious, I think, than ever before. People are a little bit more astute about the ways that systemic racism works its way into advertising and marketing and mm, the ways that mm. it could ex- potentially exploit hip hop, etc. People are a lot more cognizant of that. There's a lot more of a push towards, um, you know, independence and ownership and controlling, you know, kill your masters, you know, on your own. So, it, you know, obviously St. Ives would not be a thing that would not have ever happened clearly now. How quickly would St. Ives campaign get canceled today? Immediately. Before oh, yeah. it even began. <laughs> yeah. Before it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it would be. Yeah. Yeah. No. People, people would be fired <laughs> no. before anything ever even made it to uh, production. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about yeah. uh, let's bring it back to the videos themselves. I know that they hold a special place in, in your heart or in your at least professional acumen. Uh, they, these are part of the landscape. Which one is your favorite? Which did you go back and like while you brush up on on all of them? I was watching them earlier today. I did. And I, but you know what? I, I regularly, not regularly, like all the time, but I consistently go back and watch the Nate Dogg one. Yeah. Cause I just, I just loved Nate Dogg. Like whatever Nate Dogg was on with just, he just always made the song better mm. whenever he got on the song. So that's probably my favorite. Yeah. One, the Nate Dogg. I like one. the Nate Dogg yeah. one. I like the, uh, I like the Ice Cube one as well. There's one where he's, I, yeah. I, there's one I think where he's like, there's a helicopter involved. Um, and he's like racing. Yeah, and yeah. he's like, ch- he's like racing to, the, to get yeah, the yeah. cold St. Ives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is like, it's just fun, yeah. man. Like, it's just like a really mm-hmm. like fun time. Um, when you yeah. when you look back at that body of work, you know, obviously, like like we said, it holds up as music. It's interesting. There are all these sort of like social implications that we've discussed, and how you know, in that in the light of day now in twenty twenty three, what we know now about the way it played out. Yeah, you don't necessarily feel so good about it, but. Um, Looking at like the art itself, right? Separating the art from the the context to the extent that we can. Um, like hip hop was gonna happen regardless of whether St. Ives gets involved, right? But like, do you view this work as part of hip hop or as something like that sort of was bolted onto it or was using it? In other words, like, it, does this art fit into the genre or is it? using the genre uh or like a you know sort of a refraction of the genre how do you where do you situate them the St. Ives videos within or you know against hip-hop I mean I think it 
I think it fits in. Mm. I think probably because of because I just think that it's part of the history and it's part, you know, and, it, and like we've talked about throughout the course of this conversation, the way that those commercials came to be and what they represented at the time, it marks a certain time in history. Yeah. It marks, you know, and I think that's important to, I think that's important. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah, what yeah. I mean? You don't want to gloss over that. That's what happened. Yeah. So, so I think, um, yeah. And I mean, I, I felt, like I said, because of the level of, because the thing that makes the St. Eyes commercials so dope, again, is the music. Yep. It's because these artists were actually like writing, like making songs. <laughs> so, so crazy. That's what man. makes it really, right. I mean, it's real. I mean, that's what makes it cool. That's why we're still talking about right. it, honestly, because if they were bad yeah. songs, we wouldn't be talking about yep. it at the end of the day. Yep. Like, they wouldn't have any relevance. So, the fact that the music was as good as it was, and then again, the caliber of artists, you know, Cypress Hill, Ice Cube, Ghetto Boys. Method Man, Red Man, Wu-Tang Clan, mm. EPMD, like, these are, like, titans. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to have a discussion about the, those commercials in the context of of where hip-hop was, you know, at that time and, and what kind of bearing and, like, again, what it represented for the artists and for the, and for the business in general. And it's actually interesting to think about it in terms of, you know, hip hop's continued relationship with beer. I was thinking about that and I'm like, you know, you did hear them referencing like the malt liquors early on, but like you don't hear a ton of rappers talking about drinking beer in their music. And it's interesting because, right. you know, I know Snoop has like the Corona commercial, but that's not really playing on his hip hop. Right, right. That's playing on his Snoopness, yeah, like yeah. his coolness. And he's, you know, he's on the beach, whatever. But, you know, I was talking to um, Nappy Roots, who own, you know, is there like a rapper run own brewery here in Atlanta? Atlantucky is that Atlantucky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's called Atlantucky. And, you know, they were talking about how, you know, the craft beer industry and how it's traditionally been very white. Yeah, yeah. But how, how, you know, rappers, it's interesting because like the likeness of rappers lyrics and, you know, their art and things like that get used in, well, at one point were being used in craft beer. Tons. Um, but you didn't have <laughs> a lot of involvement. Yep. Of the artists in in the money than the monetization yep, of that, yep. um, and you know they were one of the only crews, and I don't want to say they they're the only ones, but I think they to are my the only yeah, rapper yeah. run brewery who actually they actually make their own beer, yeah. and so and they were saying you know like rappers don't talk about like drinking craft beer in their songs, yeah. Rappers talked about drinking Alizé and drinking Hennessy and things like, or, you know, Cristal and, you know, whatever else. And yep, that helped yep. make those things popular. But the fact that, you know, rappers and, and artists are not really talking about drinking craft beer in their music. It's just it's just really interesting to me, um, the continued relationship of hip hop. Because, like I said, you, you have their names and likeness and things on the cans, but then they don't seem to really be super in fall yeah yeah in a way that you know what i mean so i think that that is probably a product of craft beer being dominated by a certain type of like elder millennial or younger gen x white guy who really enjoyed coming up with the wu-tang clans of the world and Mm -hmm. you know like the biggies of the world and feel real connection to that music and you know i don't want to impugn any one person you know, certainly white people can have relationships with hip hop. Many, many do. I I don't personally, I'm not much of a hip hop, you know, like listener myself. I just know the basics, but like 
but it's also like, okay, yeah, it's cool to be a fan of that, but like it means something different when you like, you know, do a pun on like a Wu Tang lyric for like an IPA that your brewery makes, right? Like the, the something shifts there because now you're making money off it in a way that you know, can feel a little culture vulture-ish, right? Or can feel a little gross. Um, but yeah, no, you're right. Like the beer, whether it's normal beer or craft beer has never really factored in to rap in like at the same, like, you know, sort of prominence that malt liquor did for a time. And then spirits would go on to, um, by the time the nineties, uh, concluded. And that's interesting because I would think, you know, coming off of like the whole malt liquor phase, I, I would think like the next easiest thing to do and i'm not like a connoisseur or anything mm. but would be like you know a good like pbr or something or like <laughs> you know miller light or but like yeah, i mean yeah. you know it's, it seems like it's like okay well like let me you know segue into drinking beer that's not super expensive but you know does what it does and doesn't taste quite as miserable as as you know malt liquor right. does yeah as intense right. you as know malt like liquor a simple does, yeah. you can still go to the corner store and get yeah. it like yeah but so i mean it's uh, it's just interesting to me i'm but that speaks to how powerful hip-hop became how quickly in terms of its cultural cachet and its marketing you know sort of uh uh prowess is that like it skipped regular beer it didn't even have to fuck around with regular. It just went straight <laughs> up to spirits, man. You know, skipped wine. Didn't give a shit about wine for a while. Uh, not nearly as much. But uh, look, Jacinta, we have gone the distance here, as uh, we like to say on tap lines. And thank you so much for joining us. My last question to you is a very personal one. So feel free. If you have to plead the fifth, you're more than welcome to. We do honor the Constitution here uh, at tap lines. But. <laughs> Uh, have you ever had a, a St. Ives yourself? Have you ever actually drank the, the, the malt liquor itself? I have not. Me neither. And, you know, like when St. Ives had its heyday, I was not old enough to drink. So, yeah, and right. we, and when I was sneaking to drink, we weren't mm. drinking. I never had an old E. I might've maybe sipped. Yeah, I don't even remember. I don't think I've ever had like malt liquor. Malt like liquor we, in general. When we were sneaking as kids. Yeah, wow. like when we were kids sneaking to have like our little whatever, it was always something awful like yeah, right. schnapps right, or right. something. <laughs> right. you know? Like hard lemonade or something, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, You didn't know what you were doing, yeah. yeah. I've had a few more yeah, liquors in my time. Been. I've had Old English, I've had Colt 45. I've never had a St. Ives, though. I never, okay. never got around to it. But like I said, most malt liquors are kind of the same. There's not a lot of differentiation between them. So, uh, yeah, now, uh, but never St. Ives. Maybe I'll go down to the corner store. I'll put on the St. Ives mixtape. I'll get myself all psyched up for it. It's still sold. Pabst owns it now and they still sell it. There's, it's not, it, there's not much to it, uh, in terms of volume anymore. It's definitely past its, okay. past its heyday, but, uh, you can still, if you know where to look, you can still find a, a crooked eye, uh, the, the old St. Ives 40. So, you don't have to join me in that, Jacinta. You're more than welcome to you know, keep your streak going of not drinking malt liquor, and we respect that and we honor that, but uh, I'm going to bravely venture out. Listener, I encourage you, uh, should you so choose, to do the same. Jacinta Howard, thank you so much for joining Taplines. It's been an absolute pleasure going down memory lane with you. Thank you so much for having me. This is fun. Yeah. This is a really cool conversation. All right, see ya. Taplines is recorded in Richmond, Virginia, and produced by yours truly and Darby Seaside, who, along with the talented Shane Farrick, composed our delightful soundtrack. Just listen to it. I also want to give a quick shout-out to the entire Vine Pair team, and especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, Editor-in-Chief Joanna Sherino, Managing Editor Tim McCurdy, 
and art director Danielle Grinberg, who designed our lovely Taplines logo. And of course, a big thank you to you, yes you listener, for spending time with us week in and week out. We literally couldn't do this without you. I'm Dave Infante, and I'll catch you next time.